0: Acts 15 is one of the most puzzling chapters, I think, in all of the Bible because of what it contains. It has so much for us. What Luke does in Acts chapter 15 is do something quite unique, I think, to him, but also quite unique to history. Specifically, what he does is he situates all of what he wants to talk about by framing it with this wonderful event known as the Jerusalem Council. The council of Jerusalem, as we'll explain soon enough, was this council of elders and leaders in the early church that had convened at Jerusalem, yes, to discuss some weighty matters that had come up in the church, matters that were causing division. Most notably, they were discussing the way in which a Gentile sinner could be saved. And there were those that were saying that they had to keep all of the Mosaic law, that they didn't just have to have faith, but they had to do other things as well. And this council of elders and leaders convened at Jerusalem and hashed a lot of things out. And we'll get to that in a moment. But there's this great sort of uh, ending to that council. This ending that, uh, that sees the church in unity. That sees the church in solidarity as they're standing on the fact that, yes, even Gentiles, even they are saved by grace through faith, just as everyone else is. And yet... Luke concludes that whole wonderful sort of example of history in the church with six verses that we just read, which notes the separation between Paul and Barnabas. A separation, as it says, is because of a sharp disagreement between them. And so now all of that unity, all of that confidence that perhaps people might have in the church was by all accounts thrown out the window. As the two foremost voices in the church have decided to go their separate ways. They have found themselves, as we will explain hopefully in a minute. They have found themselves at a crossroads of conviction. Where each one is very certain that their particular stance is the correct one. So they decide to separate Question marks pepper this scene. If you just read it, you read about their decision making. And I think the most obvious one. And if you've ever been in a Bible class and you've gone through church history or whatnot. You've perhaps come to the scene and and wondered that same question. Who was right? Who's who's right? Because we are Americans. We want to see who's the winner. We want to identify with the winner. We want to identify with the correct person. Barnabas was adamant. He was adamant that his cousin, by the way, Mark, join the team on the next missionary journey. He was very firm in that belief that he must accompany us. And Paul was very certain that that was not the best course of action. And this is so because, well, I'll just read it really quick. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it says this. Well, I'll read verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. And when he knocked, well, that's not the right verse. That's chapter 12. (laughs) Excuse me. Chapter 13. That was not the right verse. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You have this really seminal moment. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out as the very first missionaries of the church. They're traveling to churches about to preach the gospel of Christ to them. To encourage other cities that there is a savior. And the savior is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And on the very first sort of early leg of that journey, John, this young man, John Mark, he leaves them. Abandons the team. And runs back home to Jerusalem. So now we come a couple years later, a couple while later. And we have them here at another crossroads. I want to take Mark. Well, no, Barnabas, I don't think that's right, Paul would say. Who's rights in this scenario? Who who should have conceded? Who should have compromised? Who should have uh, made a different decision? These I think are the nagging questions, even for me, as I study this particular passage. And they're normal questions, they're they're questions that pop up naturally when we read of moments and crises and, and moments of conflict. But let me just dispel something, because I think the really frustrating part about this whole narrative, this, the, perhaps the thing that even makes my blood boil a little bit, is just the fact they were both right. Both Paul and Barnabas were both right. One wasn't more right than the other, perhaps. Commentators and preachers have all given the reasons why Paul might have been right, or Barnabas, and so on and so forth, and... They all have their convictions, they all have the the certain sort of faith and wisdom that they're operating by. And for myself, after chewing on this story over and over again, Paul and Barnabas were both, in their own ways, right. And they operated out of that conviction. By all accounts, they are operating. They were coming to this crossroads very firm in what they believed, very rooted in faith, in scriptures. They were very certain that their conviction was the right one. And that ultimately led them to take different roads, to take different paths. And I have to just put myself in sort of the sandals of someone in Jerusalem. And you hear the news how stunned do you think the Jerusalem elders were that their dream team, missionary team, has now decided to split ways? How do you think they handled the news that, that this, this group of guys that they had commissioned and sent forth out of their church body? In a, such a way that, that they were sent forth with power and with might and authority and they were sent forth in the call of God. And now they're no longer going to be doing that. I imagine that this was greeted by no small amount of discouragement and despair and disappointment. And rightly so. Why would God let this happen? Why would God let this happen? This is a very early point in the church, a very early point when the the, the doctrines of Christ are being expounded and they're exploding. They have just seen this great success on the very first missionary journey with churches over and over again being encouraged and built up and being strengthened by the gospel of Christ. Why would he allow this to occur? Why would he risk the health and the growth, of the growth of his beloved church by allowing this schism to happen? I think the point of this dispute, I think, is to say, for the church... The church in this day and the church even now. That sometimes there is no quote unquote right answer to every point of discrepancy and contention. And that sometimes you have to agree to disagree. And sometimes God has some lessons for us to learn at the crossroads. At moments of life in which the juncture appears very dismal and frustrating. Before diving into all that just... A quick overview of some of the characters that are involved in this scene there's three here that are worth considering and because they are involved in this scene they're so uh, intricate to how this passage is explained it's important to know something about them because that's how I think this story is most clearly understood John Mark of course this one who had left the mission field he is the son of a woman named Mary just another Mary not one of the Marys that we're perhaps familiar with and He was a native of Jerusalem, and it was very likely, that verse that I accidentally read, by the way, in chapter 12, was an indication of that he comes from a fairly well-to-do family. After Peter is saved from prison in Acts chapter 12, and he's led out of prison by the angel and whatnot, he comes to the house of Mary, where many of the leaders of the church and the believers had gathered. He was recruited later on in chapter 12 to accompany Paul and Barnabas on that very first missionary journey. He was handpicked as one who could accompany them as a disciple on the team that was going to go and preach Christ to all of these nations. And then yet very quickly into that journey, Acts chapter 13 verse 13, he leaves. It's not really known why. A lot of people have sort of tried to give their answers to why he departed the field. Whether he got homesick, whether he was scared, whether he was just overwhelmed by the the prospect in the office of preaching Christ. Who knows? But regardless, he reveals something about himself and departs that field of ministry. Leaving Paul and Barnabas to continue on in that journey on their own. Barnabas is the other character that appears in this scene and he is someone that I think we as the church even now today ought to owe a lot more respect. He's not one that we often think of and when we get to certain junctures in New Testament history. He kind of leaves that course of history and we're going to explain that in a second. But he was recognized. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, notice this. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 36. This is, One of the first appearances of Barnabas in the New Testament. And notice he has a voice that is recognized and that is sort of seen as a significant voice in the early church. Notice Acts 4.36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And from there he is influential in the church. Mostly, I think, uh, appearing in a way that is so fascinating in Acts chapter 9. If you go there for a second, look at Acts chapter 9 verse 26. This is, of course, after... paul uh, formerly saul was uh, uh, found by christ the resurrected christ on the road to damascus and of course he's struck blind and of course we know that he receives the call of god to preach the gospel to the gentiles and yet you can imagine the church in this moment this guy who was paul who was ravaging the church going into houses of churchgoers and dragging them out and bringing them to prison and in fact yes even executing them is now suddenly a preacher of grace it must have been hard to believe but notice who stands up for Paul it says in verse 26 of chapter 9 and when he had come that is Paul What an awesome scene. What an awesome testimony to exactly what Barnabas is known for. This one who is known for his encouragement of the saints and of the church. Is here coming alongside Paul who is having those doubts whether he is a believer. Doubts whether he has truly received the grace of the Holy Spirit. And here Barnabas says yes you can. I can vouch for this man. And then of course in chapter 13 he is then selected along with Paul. Chosen by the Holy Spirit. To preach the gospel on this first journey of missionaries. And that leads us to the third character of course which is Paul. Of course we know his story as I just sort of summarized. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. A zealot of those who were very adamant about the law. And very concerned about keeping all of the Mosaic rites and the covenants. He was one who was very concerned with the granular levels of what it means to be righteous. In the eyes of God, as he says in his own testimony in Philippians 3, that if anyone thinks they have righteousness, I have more. Because I've been way more zealous than anyone. I was so zealous for the things of God as I understood them at the time, that I was even persecuting the church. That's how zealous I was. Yet he's found by God in the middle of the road... On his way, by the way, with dispatches in his hands that were going to give him clearance to, yes, go and persecute and even execute more in the city of Damascus. He was on his way to continue that resolve. And yet, who finds him on the road? Christ does. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul and his persecution of the church was actually inflicting pain on Christ himself. And he finds Paul and snatches him out of that particular way of life. And there's lots we can say about Paul's life. He was he, Earlier than that, he had seen the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Which I have to imagine had such a profound impact on Paul's life. Seeing what Stephen said, Steve, seeing what Stephen had in terms of faith and confidence in who his Christ was, even as those stones were being hurled at his face. And eventually Paul is the one who is changed and those the one who turns the world upside down with the message of the gospel, with the message that yes, that Christ that you put on the cross is none other than yes, the son of God himself. And he's died for your sins. And he eventually writes all of those letters, the, many of the letters that we find in our New Testament. He writes about how he's the least of the apostles. He considers himself as nothing, he considers himself as the chief of sinners because he remembers from where he was saved. His voice in the church, of course, even the church of today, has been a long-standing voice of conviction and truth that we, yes, owe much to Paul and his faith and his testimony. So we have these three characters then. John, John Mark, Barnabas, and Paul. And they are here. They find themselves at this juncture in Acts chapter 15. As with everything... Just like in real estate business, location, location, location are the three rules for good real estate. As it comes to scripture, the the great three rules of studying the Bible is context, context, and context. Keeping what appears in context with what precedes and what follows. So what's the context of this particular passage here? There's lots to say about that. And I think there's lots that go into this, and if you'll forgive me, I'm going to explain a little bit about this. And this may be some granular history, but hope I hope it will impact you in some way because I think this is absolutely crucial to keep in mind everything that has occurred. So in the years um, 46 and 47 AD, that's roughly around the time frame when the missionary journey that you can find in chapter 13 and 14 occurs. 46 and 47 AD. That's when Paul and Barnabas are going to all those churches. They're going to, they are sent out from Antioch and they go into a region that is roughly southern Galatia in a way. And they preach the gospel. They preach the resurrection. They preach Christ. And then they get back home. And eventually, throughout that, uh, in the year 48 AD, Paul writes the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is then sent to those same churches, by the way. Those same churches that he was just leaving and just preaching after all of some of the turmoil that happens in some of the cities. Some of the the conflict that occurs in some of those locations. He writes the book of Galatians mostly as a response to some of the false gospels that had already creeped up. Some of the false ways in which Christ has been explained to the churches in the intervening time period. That's I think where we get to Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Notice chapter 15, verse 1, because this is kind of crucial, I think, that you see this. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was their message. We can often call them the Judaizers. These were those who were so adamant about the fact that saving faith isn't just about faith alone. It's faith plus something else. Faith plus all of these other things you got to do. So Paul writes Galatians because he does not want those churches that he had just visited to be warped by this doctrine. That there's something else that they have to do to get saved. And many would say, and I agree, that there's this gap of time between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 here. And during that gap of time is when Paul writes Galatians. As he hears this news, he hears this goings-on that, yes, there's people who are trying to preach another gospel. As he says in Galatians chapter 1, there is no other gospel. And if you think you can preach another gospel, let him be accursed, he says. And that leads us to the same year, so roughly around spring of 48 AD is when he wrote Galatians, and then roughly in the fall to winter of 48 AD, that's when the council occurs. All of the leaders, perhaps, they've read Galatians themselves. They've read that letter. They hear of Paul being so fiery and passionate and adamant about the things of the Lord and about the things of the cross and about justification by faith alone. That they have this convening of minds at Jerusalem to debate this doctrine. Essentially, the doctrine of justification by faith. That's their question. As they come into as all these leaders are gathered, and they are there, and they're sitting around in Acts chapter 15, and they're discussing what? How can a sinner, especially a Gentile sinner, be made righteous in the eyes of God? And what is their conclusion? Look at verse 11 of chapter 15. They say, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Period. Saved by grace. This is their conclusion conclude that everything that happens in the church ought to be happening according to the doctrine of justification by faith. There's no Jesus and something else. There's no Jesus plus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the one who brings sinners to salvation. Whether you are Jew or Gentile. Whether you have had a background in church or not. It does not matter according to this council, And yes, according to the bulk of scripture. According to the testimony of the word of God. That is the testimony upon which we stand. That we are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. All because of Christ alone. Which, by the way, that's what Galatians is all about. And then... A couple years later, that's when Paul received that call in chapter 16 of of Acts, where he receives the call to go to Macedonia, and he has a change of plans in terms of what he's aiming to do. So, which is just to say, between the Jerusalem Council in 48 and the call of Paul in 52, there's four years in which something occurred. A sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas about... Something about John Mark, yes, perhaps, perhaps other things. So what happened? What caused this sharp disagreement to drive these two uh, voices of the church to go their separate ways? As we've already noted in verse 36, Paul comes up after this council and he's burdened by God. We need to go back, Barnabas, we need to go back to those same churches... The very ones that we visited on the first missionary journey, we need to go back to them. And we need to preach to them what the council has just determined. That justification is by faith. We need to go and encourage them in that wonderful, blessed, freeing doctrine. So that they will not be swindled by the false ones. And Paul says, yes, this is a great idea. And Barnabas agrees. Great idea, Paul. Let's take John Mark with us. At which time Paul just stopped in his tracks, I imagine. It says in verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. He's not in favor of this idea at all. Barnabas, I think that's a bad idea. Look at what happened last time. Look at what occurred last time he was with us on the field. He flaked. He ran away. He abandoned us when we were on this journey to preach to the nations. And each of them then remains resolved in their position. Verse 39, and they arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other They go their separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark and he sails for Cyprus, his homeland by the way, Barnabas's. And Paul eventually finds Silas and he goes out of the church's heads for Cilicia. And from there on we will uh, perhaps know what the rest of the New Testament unfolds for us as he finds Timothy and so on and so forth. The reason, though, why all of these circumstances and those contexts matter with the council and the years and the letters and all that kind of stuff is because I truly believe that this separation between Paul and Barnabas wasn't just about Mark. It wasn't just about whether he should join them or not. I think there were other things that influenced Paul and his decision-making. Go with me to Galatians chapter 2 because I want you to see this. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 7 of chapter 2, as Paul is here sort of introducing some of the reasons why he's writing. He says in Galatians chapter 2, 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So he's explaining what happened and what led to that first journey. I was received by these pillars of the church. They saw my testimony. They saw what occurred. And they saw what occurred in me. And they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And they sent us out to go to the Gentiles. To go to the poor. But then notice verse number 11. Because he references that time. When he opposes Cephas aka Peter to his face. Because of his hypocritical actions. Notice. But when Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came he drew back. And separated himself. Fearing the circumcision party. In which I truly believe that this confrontation happens. In that gap of time. Between Acts chapter 15.1 and Acts chapter 15.2. That time when the the stir was starting in the churches. That there's Judaizers. And you have to do something else. Other than just faith to be saved. There's other things you got to do. You got to do all of these checklists of items and Peter was influenced instead of fellowshipping and fraternizing with Gentiles suddenly he sees these high-minded Pharisees come down and he suddenly backs away he backs off well, I can't be with them can't I don't want to I don't want to be associated with those people and Paul calls him out he says you're acting hypocritically You're not acting as one who knows the grace of Christ. So he says, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. He's scolding Peter. You know the grace. You've preached grace to Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and 11, the wonderful testimony of Cornelius coming to salvation through the ministry of Peter. And he says that the grace of God is for all, for the Gentiles, yes, especially So he's standing up to Peter, yes, and he's reminding the Galatians, this is what I've done, because the doctrine of justification is so important. And notice who else he scolds. Verse 13 again, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're acting not in according with the gospel, Peter. And even though he's addressing Peter in the eyes, he's addressing Barnabas too, as he has just revealed that Barnabas too was led astray by this hypocrisy of the Judaizers. This controversy then surrounding saving faith was so bitter. So fraught with tension, yes. That, that Paul not only writes this most fiery of all of his letters, Galatians. Is easily his most passionate letter of all the letters that he has ever written. But he also is, is very confident in rebuking his brothers in arms in their very face. He's okay with coming up to him and saying, you are wrong in this situation. You see for Paul... Then, this upcoming journey that he wants to go on, if you go back to Acts chapter 15, is incredibly momentous. A journey of such significance, of such weight, of such seriousness, that he was not looking to add any other risk to it. You can understand, Mark was a flight risk to him. He had been with him and then he left, he was a distraction. I cannot have distractions, Barnabas, on this journey. Doctrine of justification by faith is way too important for that. The burden of bringing to bear that message was just too great, I think, in Paul's mind that he didn't want anything else trying to cloud out his words. Barnabas, though, he saw this as an opportunity for Mark to grow. You can understand Barnabas' viewpoint. Mark left us. What better way to disciple Mark. Than to bring him back. And put him in the same position. And let him make a different choice. Paul is saying no. It's too significant. Barnabas is saying we need to encourage and let him grow. Such are the two positions of these men. And I think again they're both right in their own way you can see their logic Paul is very certain about what is to occur and about what is occurring within the church and it deserves the utmost of care and attention and Barnabas is saying this man deserves to grow in his faith so what happens of course we know that they go their separate ways they depart each other Which is a very significant moment in the church. A significant moment for each of these men. Barnabas, you might know, is is never heard from again after this moment. Interestingly enough. He never pops up again in any of the New Testament scriptures except for one very passing remark in 1 Corinthians 9. He has never explicitly mentioned or referred to or have any of his words recorded. And I want to be clear, that's not an indictment on Barnabas. That's not to say that he was wrong. I don't think so. I think the silence of scripture on Barnabas is just to show us what God did through Paul. Paul. Barnabas actually sails to Cyprus and he ha- or Barnabas sails to Cyprus yes and he has a very successful ministry there ministry of great faith of great consequence even eventually leading to his martyrdom for his faith he was very resolved in the things of the Lord such that he was martyred for the very faith that he stood for Barnabas is a leader of the church that ought to be respected as he takes Mark with him. Paul of course makes this decision to go his separate ways from Barnabas. And it creates this incredibly crucial sort of juncture and pivot point for the church. As is evidenced by the next chapter. When there's all of this incredible momentum happening in the church. As this unfortunate breakup of Paul and Barnabas paves the way so to speak. For the greeting and the welcoming and the joining of Timothy to the team that Paul has put together, which of course leads to just an abundance of ministry success throughout the rest of the New Testament as, as Paul and Timothy impacted churches far and wide, great and far. They formed this team that was more than just teacher and fellow disciple, they were father and son, as Paul repeatedly says about Timothy. This is my son in the faith, and I just have to wonder and I have to perhaps believe that God in his sovereign wisdom, wisdom which is not oft all the time given to us, allowed this separation because he knew what was coming. He knew what was in store. For this moment. For this church. And that leads me to. Just reference what happened to John. His is the most fascinating. Of all of the stories that happened. In the aftermath of the separation. John's is. Because we don't hear much about him either. After he sails away with Barnabas. He, he goes along with Barnabas to Cyprus. And he's not really heard from. Except for some passing references. Throughout the New Testament. He sails with Barnabas to Cyprus, but eventually he's taken under the wing of our beloved apostle Peter. Go with me to First Peter chapter five. I just want you to see this. As we're going to turn to a few passages to note, to note John Mark's sort of life story, if you will. Notice First Peter five. Look at verse thirteen. Peter is writing, and notice who he includes here in this sort of salutation. She, that is the church who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, notice, my son. This one who had abandoned Paul and had been taken under the wing of Barnabas, who uh, perhaps uh, was martyred in the year 61 AD, finds himself under the wing of Peter, who is now being referred to as Peter's son. And of course, if you look at extra biblical history and whatnot, many likely believe that Peter had a direct influence on Mark writing his gospel. That through the course of Peter's preachings about Christ the Lamb, that Mark was inspired to write that beloved gospel that we have in our New Testaments. And he grows under Peter. And his growth is noticed by Paul. Notice the book of Philemon. I'm going to go to a couple of these passages. Notice the book of Philemon. Philemon, verse 24. Notice what Paul says here as he's concluding this letter. Verse 23, actually. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Notice the book of Colossians, chapter number 4. The book of Colossians, chapter number 4. Again, notice who Paul includes as he concludes this, includes as he closes this letter to the church at Colossae. Notice Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you. Welcome him. And notice now. 2nd Timothy chapter 4. Verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 11. And here I think. Is the most important of all of these references. To beloved John Mark. That come from Paul. Notice what he says. 2nd Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me get mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry what a testimony to mark testimony to this man of faith who yes perhaps made a mistake left the field was taken under barnabas's wing And then was taken under Peter's wing and was here noticed by Paul to say, you're useful to me for ministry. His life saw him go from one who abandoned the ministry and his calling to one who is useful to ministry. Which I think is exactly the point that this is discipleship at work in his life. And I think it is furthermore a testament to the way in which Paul and Barnabas separated themselves. Which is to say as I said at the beginning That sometimes you have to agree To disagree As I said at the beginning I think they were both right In their own ways They were both firm in what they believed And and where they had come On their convictions But for the sake of the church For the sake of the whole body of Christ What did they do? They chose to go their separate ways Without slandering Without mudslinging, without maligning each other and the process, without harboring bitterness towards each other or ill will towards each other because of the ways in which this sharp disagreement arose between them. Instead, what do we find? They demonstrated how faithful believers can disagree and still stay civil. And in fact, we could say, still stay Christian. I think Mark's reunion with Paul is proof of that. That the greater good of God's church prevailed in the way in which they separated. Which I'm sure, I am confident, was a devastating blow to the church. But it was one that God used to bring about his desired ends. To bring about his glory. Which doesn't make sense. I think about this so often. And when God brings us to crossroads, sometimes it feels as though these things don't make sense. I'm going to stretch way back. You probably don't remember the sermon. It's okay. It was a long time ago because it was when I was preaching out of 1 Kings. That was a long time ago. 1 Kings 12. I don't know if you remember that story. But it's actually one of my favorite stories now in all of the Bible. Which might seem odd because 1 Kings 12 is a very sad sort of chapter. If you remember, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon has died. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon, but I'm just going to try and get you into it. 1 Kings 11, Solomon passes away, and the kingdom of God goes into disarray. Solomon's son, he comes to the throne, and he makes some very, very poor decisions, very poor choices that lead to an uprising, that lead to an insurrection by the other ten tribes of Israel. There's this separation that occurs. There's this great revolt that happens in that chapter. If you remember, all of this happens. And, and Solomon's son, he goes back into his palace. And he's sort of licking his wounds. And he's sort of talking with all of his cabinet leaders. Uh, and he's saying, we gotta, we got to counter strike. we got to get back at these tribes and bring them back in unto our dominion. We cannot let this stand. And what happens? The prophet of God. Who appears, I think, only here, but a prophet named Shemaiah. He walks into the room, and what does he say? He convinces them to lay down your arms. He convinces them to say, Don't take up arms and bring further bloodshed into the nation of Yahweh. And said, What does he say? This thing is from me. And I think, if I were someone in that room, Would I believe that? Would I believe that this rupturing of God's kingdom. A kingdom of promise. A kingdom of covenant. A kingdom that was supposed to bless and be a blessing to the nations. And yet here it's being fractured with civil war and disruption. And and all of these horrible ends. And yet the prophet says this thing is from Yahweh. Who are we to oppose his will. And yes, at times it does not make sense. It does not seem good, but what does God promise? That he works everything. Yes. Including the messes. Out for his good desired ends. He works everything out. For his glory. Sometimes God brings Christians. To a crossroads. And we come to that fork in the road. And that is when we have to make some really difficult decisions. And sometimes those crossroads. Are the result of mistakes. And sometimes life circumstances. Just bring them about. And sometimes God sovereignly allows the crossroads. For reasons That forever remain unknown to the likes of you and me. And that's difficult. But I think the point of it all is that those crossroads are not always entirely negative junctures. Coming to those forks in the road. It's not always a sign that something bad is happening. Even if it might feel that way. Sometimes it's precisely God's prelude to doing something new. And that's scary. It's daunting. It leaves us feeling as though we have no moorings. Because things are being upset. Things are being made to look differently. For the people of Israel in 1 Kings 12 it looked greatly different. For the church in Acts chapter 15, it looked greatly different. Yet for the wisdom at the crossroads, who do we cling to? Ever and always we cling to Christ. He is the one who holds us fast forever.